Can I, for Christ's sake, touch you now? And so the lovemaking began. There was no longer any reason for my pulling away from Chris except the real one, fear. It was my mother's longest-lived legacy to me. My fear was justified. After the first great stabbing pain as Chris entered me, I was lost, swallowed, drowned. I screamed for Chris to stop. I was utterly gone in panic. It had been this fear then that waited for me in my own body, not the world's fears, pregnancy, disgrace. This one, the fear of vanishing altogether from the face of the earth. Chris did not stop. When it was done the last time, I began to cry. It was like dying. I know, he said, grinning. They say it is like that, when it's the best it can be. After that, we did it only once a night. But it was always something exotic and unimagined. I became what I believe is currently called a love slave and spent the time I was not in bed with Chris turning myself into a perfect buckhead surgeon's wife. By the winter before my marriage, I was growing haggard trying to decide how to handle the matter of my parents. My father solved the problem early that spring by choking to death on vomit. He gave my mother the graceful cover of mourning in which to hide from my wedding for she had behaved so baroquely and defectedly at the one obligatory luncheon my mother-in-law, Sally Calhoun, had given for her, that it was apparent even to her that she would not be welcome there again. My mother never held his mother against Chris. To her, he could do no wrong. After the beating started, the first thing she said was, What did you do to make him that mad? The shrink I found last spring told me, you need to get away from her as much as him. But I love her, I said. At least half of her. Then leave the part you hate and send letters to the half you love. Do you want Chris to kill Hillary? He wouldn't hurt Hillary, I said. He loves Hillary. Andy, said the shrink. He loves you. This is what Chris does when he loves. Each time it happened, he cried and begged my forgiveness. The first broken bone we explained as a fender bender. An open kitchen cabinet door got credit for the eye and cheek laceration. It seems incredible to me now, but I actually caught myself saying one morning after he had bruised my stomach and thighs so severely that I slept sitting up, I don't think any of this would have happened if I hadn't behaved like a whore with him. But I could not take action. And then, one evening in April, Chris wheeled his Mercedes into the driveway and screeched to a stop because Stinker was lying in it. And when Stinker did not move, he simply gunned the car forward and ran over his daughter's dog. There was a flat thump and a high, anguished, endless scream from my daughter. And then nothing. Well, Hillary, look what you made me do. Maybe now you'll learn to keep your animals out of the driveway, he said. Hillary was gone and up the stairs to her room before I could move. Get that dog out of here and bury him someplace, Chris. And then go to the hospital or the office someplace. You can come back in two days because we'll be gone by then. He raised his fist and then lowered it. I did not move. I knew it was not I who deterred him, but the thought of Hillary the daughter whom he so loved and had now wounded past his power to heal. Past, perhaps, anyone's. And then, in mid-August, two things happened. 
A letter came telling me that Chris was filing for divorce and suing for custody of Hillary. And Hillary found the letter on my desk and read it and took an entire bottle of children's Tylenol. The afternoon after I brought her home from the hospital, white and mute and listless, I called our attorney friend, Bill Kimbra, and made an appointment to see him the next day in his office downtown. I went into the coffee shop on the ground floor and ran into Tish Coulter. She had it out of me in 15 minutes and went to see Bill Kimbra with me, and in another hour had out of him his grim-faced assurance that the case would never see court and that Chris would be a lucky man if I did not choose to have him jailed for assault, battery, and mental cruelty. By late afternoon, she had my promise to come the next week and at least see Pemberton. We did and stayed three days and left again. I with a job in the public relations department of Pemberton State College. On the Thursday afternoon before Labor Day, we rolled into Pemberton, Georgia, in a second-hand yellow Toyota Celica station wagon. In my files was a court order forbidding Chris to contact Hillary or me until the divorce was granted, and he had completed at least half a year of psychotherapy. We came into Pemberton itself, green and dreaming and somehow a little eerie, with its wide, quiet streets lined with the huge Baroque fantasy homes of the unimaginably rich winter people who had come here with their servants and children and horses since the closing of the last century to renew themselves and play. It looks stuck up, Hillary said fretfully. Well, it isn't, I said decisively. Aunt Tish says the people here are wonderfully friendly. She turned her head to read a sign. That says hunting season starts next week. Does that mean people can kill animals? Well, I guess it does. Some kinds, I said. I hate this place, Hillary said, and for the rest of the afternoon she was quiet. On our first morning in Pemberton, Hillary came sobbing into my bedroom in Tish's guest house. I heard the nightmares coming for me right outside my window. They made a hoarse noise, and their feet sounded not like they should. Honey, it was a bad dream. That's what a nightmare is, I soothed. Let's go look. There was nothing out a window. Tish laughed when I recounted it. She did hear horses. We're just a block from the training track in the stables, and lots of people ride their horses along the street in the morning. The street is dirt. That's why their hooves sounded funny. It's the ultimate status symbol in Pemberton to live on one of the dirt streets. It's one of the South's best-kept secrets, Pemberton is. I guess it's because the very rich have never needed anything except privacy, and there's a hideous lot of money in Pemberton, dirt roads notwithstanding. Don't knock them, by the way. Your new house is on one. I rented you the guest cottage at Pipe Dream, the old Belvedere place. It's wonderful, Andy, with stone fireplaces and porches all around, and it's cheap. It sounds perfect, Tish. Hillary will love it. It's just that Pemberton is not your ordinary little southern town, is it? It's very exotic. My God, it's so rich. It doesn't seem to me to be a... Oh, I don't know, a, a normal town. I must have paled because she leaned over and pressed my hand and said, There's nothing here to scare you. Pemberton's rich, but very comfortable and unassuming. Come on, Andy. Get Hillary and we'll do the driving tour, and then we'll go out to lunch at the inn. From the beginning, when Tish nosed her mud-spattered blazer into the streets of Pemberton, I was lulled with charm. Pemberton dreamed in a well of deep green as cool as a secret sea. 
Fine old oaks, some hung with scarves of gray moss, vaulted over the streets and lined long driveways. The Pemberton Inn was a rambling, deep-roofed clapboard skirted with stone verandas. Tish pulled her blazer in beside a low cream jaguar and tooted her horn lightly. The jaguar's doors opened on either side, and Charlie and another man peered out. Not bad for a country obstetrician, I said, and he laughed. Andy, this is Carter Devereaux. Carter, meet Andy Calhoun, Tish's and my oldest joint friend. I've been looking forward to meeting her, the second man said. His smile was direct and sweet, like a child's. The five of us walked into the inn. Inside, the big, cool lounge was paneled in handsome old carved oak. Hunting prints and equestrian paintings were everywhere. We were shown to a table. Carter is one of the best estate planners for horse owners in the South, Tish said fondly as well as being one of the best polo players and best steeplechasers. Is there anything to do in Pemberton that doesn't have to do with horses, I said quickly. Lots of dogs, Charlie said. Hunting dogs, mainly. They're finishing up the Southern Terrier trials over at the track tomorrow. Carter's got a couple of terriers competing. What kind of dogs are they, Hillary's small silver voice said. Carter smiled at her. Jack Russells. If you'll come out to the track tomorrow and bring your mother, I'll introduce you. It was a pleasant lunch. People came by and welcomed me and Hillary to Pemberton. The talk turned to horses and hunting. Hunting season did indeed open the coming week. I hated the talk for Hillary's sake, but there was nothing I could say to her in front of all these people. You really will come to the trials tomorrow, won't you? Carter Devereaux said to me and to Hillary. There's some horses around the stables about your size. The sun came out in Hillary's eyes again. And so I nodded yes. I didn't realize this was such big hunt country, I said to Tish as she pulled out of the lot. Oh, Lord, yes. Some of the best hunting is out around the...